Then Esther called for Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in the front of the king's gate. And Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and to plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hathak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come into the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Betsy. Well, good afternoon, everybody. It's great to be here. Um, Something really strange happened on Monday morning. I woke up completely unable to speak. Like I could try shouting and you couldn't even hear me. And that continued through most of the week. And I took a road trip with John to a church planning conference with Acts 29, which was amusing because the whole car ride, I had to watch John try to have a one-sided conversation with himself, so that was entertaining. Uh, and then also, you know, while we're at the conference, I just had to wear a sign on my chest that says mute. And, you know, John never got tired of the joke as we're in a circle of people. You know, someone would say something, and he'd look over me and go, oh, Steve, what do you think about that? I was like, never asking John to be a wingman ever again. Uh, just kidding. He, he was a good wingman. Uh, it really has not much to do with this sermon, other than I'm glad... My voice is now back, and I can walk through God's Word with you guys. If it does happen to die halfway through, uh, Andrew Workman will gladly uh, just finish it out. All right, so um, so we are in Esther, and the main theme of Esther is God's silent sovereignty. Okay, silent sovereignty. And so what we see throughout Esther is God is absolutely silent. You never hear a peep from him. You don't hear him. And yet he's the hidden hero of the story because what we see is he's behind the scenes orchestrating all events, being present with his people uh, according to his promises. And because of this, you could say that the book of Esther actually has more in common with our position today than any other book of the Bible, right? Because most other books of the Bible, God is visibly there, right? He's manifest. And today, you know, we don't see 
physical manifestations of God. Uh, and in many ways, you know, it feels like God is silent, right? We wonder, like, what is he up to? Is he actually with me? And I think this, is, this suspicion of God's absence is amplified because we live in a city where not many people care about God, right? Just like in Esther's day. And so what we're going to see today is how does the theme of God's silent sovereignty impact us when we live in the palace, Okay, we live in the palace because Esther is one of God's people who she's found herself in the palace. What's the palace? Well, the palace is where the, that the palace is where the riches are. It's where the people with connections are. You know, it's, it's where the, it's where the careers are. Um, and us, by virtue of living in DC, you know, we could say we are in certainly like a palace of the world. We're in a place where there's lots of connections and money and where things happen. And so we're going to see how does God's silent sovereignty help us as we are religious and social minorities in the palace of D.C., just like Esther was. And so uh, we'll look at this under three headings. First, we'll see what's the main choice Esther has to make in the palace. Number two, how does she make this choice? And number three, how can we choose as Esther did? So first, what's the main choice Esther has to make in the palace? Number two, how does she make this choice? And number three, how can we choose as Esther did. So first number one, the choice Esther has to make. So the scene opens here in chapter four with the city, the capital city of Persia in utter chaos. So last chapter, the arch nemesis of the story, Haman, has issued an edict to have all the Jews in the entire empire murdered 11 months from now. So everyone's confused, frenetic, even the Persians, because they're basically being asked to kill neighbors they've known. And Mordecai is outside the palace weeping, Esther's inside the palace. There's a symbolism there. And this exchange takes place. Note that they never actually see each other face to face. This whole conversation takes place between an errand runner. And so finally, Mordecai sends an errand runner to Esther. And he says, Esther, uh, in verse 8, she says, tell her to go to the king and beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. In other words, Mordecai is asking Esther to save her people through identification and mediation. Uh, Because up until now, Esther hasn't identified herself publicly as a Jew. People just know her as a Persian. And so what Mordecai is saying is reveal that you're a Jew and then from a position of vulnerability and weakness, mediate on behalf of your people because you're the only Jew who has the access to the throne in the empire. And then how does Esther respond in verse 11? She says, all the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there's but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter. So Esther's response is, okay, that's cool, Mordecai, like easy for you to say, but that's that's way too risky because just to walk into the presence of the king, it's a capital offense. And what's more than that, see at the end, she says, I haven't been called to come into the king these 30 days. So the king hasn't summoned her for 30 nights. And the king doesn't sleep alone. So she's like, I'm probably not even in his good graces right now. And so this is the moment in the story where Esther is at a crossroads. And you could say it's primarily a crossroads of identity. It's it's fascinating because actually when we meet Esther and in chapter 2, verse 7, we read that she has two names, uh, Hadassah, which is her Jewish name, and then Esther, which is her Persian name. And so up until now, she has prospered by amplifying her Persian identity, right, of Esther, and downplaying her Jewish identity of Hadassah. And so the question is now, does she continue with her Persian identity 
and maybe be safe and continue to enjoy the comforts and accoutrements of the Persian court? Or does she take the more risky road, right, and reveal that she's a Jew and from a position of weakness, you know, mediate on behalf of her people? And, you know, is this not a question that we face almost every single day, right? How are we going to identify in the world? And it's, it's a really, it's a twofold question. So first, just strictly think about identity. So, you know, whether it's in your job and your circle of friends and your neighborhood, just as you're engaging with people, you know, what's the, we all project an identity in the world. It's inevitable. It's part of human nature. You know, what do you most want people to see? And you could say there's the palace-esque or Persian-esque identity, right, where you just want people to see I'm intelligent, I'm attractive, I'm competent, this is my resume, you know, I'm busy, I'm dependable, right? Or is it the main thing you want people to see is I'm God's child, you know, and I belong to him, and that's the main thing that I want you to see. So first there's a question here of identity, but more than that, because out of identity, identity never just exists in a vacuum, out of that identity flows a new way of thinking. Because when Mordecai says, Esther, reveal who you are and now use your position for the good of other people, he's saying, leave the way of the palace behind because the way of the palace is just everything about me. I try to use my position for me, right? But the way of the kingdom of God is using myself and my position for others, And this plays out in so many ways. Even just like for those of you who are married, a a very basic place this comes out regularly is so there's this thing that happens around 4 or 5 p.m. on a weekday where both spouses finish what they've been doing, right? They've both been working. One's been with the kids. The other, you know, the other's been at their job. And when they meet with each other, like the default impulse is, I want you to adjust to me and just, just do what I want you to do <laughs> so that I can be happy. You know, do this with the cleaning, do this with the kid, do this with, you know, I want you to adjust to me. That's a palace way of thinking. Whereas, you know, how much more of a beautiful dance is a home when both spouse takes the attitude of, I'm here to do everything that I can to serve you, right? The way the kingdom of God. Um, or even just think, like when you enter into your job, when you walk into church, is it I'm just here to get what I need and then to leave? Or how can I attend to even just one person who's here and care for them? Because that's how the kingdom of God works. And a, a great example of this, so some of you may have heard this story. There, there's a pastor who tells a story about a woman who, she, she wasn't a Christian. She showed up at his church, and he asked her, you know, so how'd you end up here? And she goes, well, uh, a few months ago, you know, I, I work in a very it's a big city. I work in a high-pressure job, and I blew it bad at work. And I, I probably would have gotten fired. But my boss, he went to the higher-ups, and he, he took the blame for me. And there was a sense where, yeah, he was kind of responsible because he is my direct supervisor, but he totally took the blame for me. And I was able to keep my job, and he took the hit. And so I went into his office after that happened, and I asked him, I said, Many times in my career, I've had a boss take credit for my successes, but not once have I ever had a boss take credit for my failures. And he goes, uh, it's fine. Don't worry about it. Let's, just, let's move on. And she keeps pestering him. She's like, no, this is completely abnormal. Why did you do this? So finally he goes, okay, 
I'm telling you this because you keep asking. And he goes, I'm a Christian, and I believe that Jesus took the blame for me so that I can be brought into God's family. And because of this, that gives me the desire and sometimes the ability to take the blame for others. And she goes, where in the world do you go to church? And then she tells the pastor, you know, that's why I'm here. And it's just such a good example because here, here was a, a guy in a high power position who had, you know, the capital, you could say, in the palace. But because his identity was rooted not in the palace, the palace hadn't devoured him. Because his identity was rooted in being a follower of Jesus, he was able to actually right, identify as a Christian and use his position to help somebody else. Even, you know, he didn't know if he'd have his job or not after taking the blame. And so that's what Esther's being called to do. Look, this is really hard. This is what Esther's being called to do, and it's what we're being called to do as well. Okay, so that's the first thing. The choice Esther has to make, identifying with God's people and then using our position for other people. So number two, because this is so difficult, if you think this is easy, I'm just going to challenge you and say, you, then you, you haven't tried this hard enough, <laughs> okay? Um, so how does Esther make the choice? So let's keep reading. When Esther says it's too risky, uh, look what Mordecai says in uh, verse 13 and 14. Mordecai sends this reply, don't think to yourself that in the king's palace you'll escape any more than all the other Jews, i.e. you'll probably be found out anyway. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish, and who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. This is this through verse 16 is probably the most important few lines in all of Esther, FYI. And so what's Mordecai saying? For if you keep silent this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. Mordecai is, he's preaching the gospel to Esther. It's not explicit. But Mordecai, as a Jew, he knows Jewish history. He knows that God made a promise to Abraham that through Abraham's line, God would bring salvation through his people, which would be ultimately be Jesus. Mordecai doesn't know that yet, but he knows God has committed to preserve a people. We're God's people. In fact, in Galatians 3.8, Paul writes, the promises given to Abraham beforehand were the gospel, right? So uh, Mordecai, he's preaching the gospel to Esther. And so what he's saying is, Esther, I don't know how it's going to work, but I know that God is going to preserve the Jews somehow. So you need to make a choice. Are you going to identify with God's people or are you going to take, you know, essentially the, the easy way out? And what he's doing here is he's emphasizing God's sovereignty, right? So God is absolutely in control. But he doesn't just, um, he doesn't just emphasize the sovereignty of God. He then now moves to Esther slash human responsibility, right? So he says, who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. So that word come can be translated brought to the kingdom. So in other words, what he is saying is, Esther, you didn't end up here by accident, Okay, it's not just that the king just so happened to get drunk and happy to make and just happened to make an obnoxious request to Vashti. She just happened to snub him and say, no, you just happened to be chosen by the king. No, you were brought here by God, right? And God has equipped you with your temperament, with your looks, yes, even your weaknesses to be in this position. So yes, God is sovereign, but the ordinary means by which God often executes his sovereign plan is through people. So Esther, here you have a responsibility to act. 
So he's saying God's absolutely sovereign, and yet you're responsible. And it's at this moment in the story where we see a sea change in Esther, as it were, right? Because then Esther replies, go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, hold a fast on my behalf, do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I, my young women, will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. This, This is amazing. So she's saying first, I'm going to go fast. You go fast as well. Tell all the Jews in the city to do it. This is synonymous with prayer. And first of all, this is a change in Esther because before she's been mainly passive compliant, Mordecai has only given orders to her. Now she's giving orders to Mordecai, and you'll see the shift now takes place through the rest of the story. Now Esther is the one making decisions and giving orders, right? But so she says, let's all pray. And so what she's saying is, God's sovereignty, right? So let's pray with a desperate dependence on the Lord that he'll do something. But human responsibility, right? Then in confidence, because God's sovereign, I'm going to go to the king. I'll risk it all. And if I perish, I perish. And this dynamic of God's sovereignty and human responsibility, it's so rich. Um, This has been one of the things that's been the most freeing things for me. And I hope even just by touching on it today, it can be for you. Because as we think about this element, right? So God's completely in control of history, but we're responsible. What we tend to do is treat them as a zero-sum dynamic, right? So I'm 70% responsible for the things that happen, and God's 30%, you know, sovereign. Or, you know, the other way around. God's 70% in control. You know, it's about 30% up to me. But what we see time and time again throughout the scriptures is... It's not 50-50, it's not 90-10, it's 100-100. God is 100% sovereign in control over everything going on in history and in your life. And yet, you are 100% responsible, right, to act and to move based on how God has made you. Yes, does this contradict basic elementary math? It does, but such as it is. This is how it, this is how it works, right, sometimes in God's economy. And to, to get more practical, you know, we're going to weigh toward one side or the other. If you're the kind of person who tends just to weigh things more toward, you know, God's in control, I'm not as responsible, that tends to either make you very passive, you know, so, oh yeah, God's going to save who he's going to save, so why be a witness? God's going to do what he's going to do, so why pray? Or you're not going to step into the person that God's made you to be, you know, because you don't recognize that, like, God has equipped you as a very unique person in the position that you're in to bring life to particular people, there's no, God's sovereign, it doesn't really matter what I do, so whatever. Or the other way around, I think this is probably more common for most of our church, just by virtue of where we live, is we weigh things way too much for the human responsibility side of things. And when this happens, you get profoundly anxious. You're worried all the time, right? Because everything is always up to you and God's asleep at the wheel. And one of the people who's been the greatest examples to me of living in this dynamic is Dr. Paul Jun, who preaches here you know, every, every one to two months. And so Paul, he, on the one hand, he is the, bar none, he's the most disciplined and hardworking person I've ever met. It's annoying, um, but, but he is. But on the other hand, he's also the most even keel, just like stress-free person also that I've ever met. And so a question that he often gets is, you know, Paul, how how do you not burn out? How are you always so stress-free? Because he has a lot of demands. He teaches full-time in our partner seminary, RTS. He pastors a church full-time 
and Tyson's. He has three kids. He's always writing books. He's always doing a lot of things. And this is what he says. And, you know, he has a resume that puts many resumes in the D.C. area just to shame. But he says, when I remember that I'm really not that important, I'm not that big of a deal. Like, I'm a blip on the map at best. And God's the one who's sovereign, right? Orchestrating all things according to his purposes. And I really can't control that many things or that many people around me. That gives me a, a lightness about me that not many people in this area seem to enjoy. Right? And many, one of the reasons why a lot of people move out of the DMV area is because there's an intensity here. There's a weight here that's just tough to handle. But he says, when I stop taking myself so seriously, you know, always trying to, you know, try to be the smartest one in the room or try to make like everything go according to plan, I can just, you know, it gives me, a, I'm putting some words in his mouth, but like I see it in his life. It gives him a poise and a longevity, right? That's very unique. And so that's what God is offering us here by, yes, like he, he gives us agency and ability to make things happen in his world, for eternity, but yet he's also completely with you, and nothing is not going to go according to his plan, okay, and this is what Esther gets, and it allows her to then move forward, okay, so that's how Esther is able to make her decision, and so now, how can we make the decision that Esther did, right, and because this, when she says, I will go to the king, though it's against the law, and if I perish, I perish, this is one of the most tremendous acts of courage in the entire Bible, you know, and in human history. I mean, here she was an orphan girl. She's found herself in the palace, and now she's saying, okay, yeah, I could play it safe and stay comfortable, but instead I'm going to go to the king where, where the odds are, you know, 95% plus that I'm going to be executed. And Imagine, so, you know, we'll see as the story goes on, Esther does go and she saves her people. And I was thinking about this. Imagine if you're a Jew in the city of Susa and you're here in chapter four amid the pandemonium and you now know, I mean, as sure as the sun will rise 11 months from now, you're going to be murdered. And then the 11 months go by and you're not. And the only reason that you're not murdered is because there was a little girl. She's maybe in her early 20s at this point. She's in the palace, and she willingly decides to save your life through identification and mediation. Right? She identifies with you, and then from a place of weakness, she goes and mediates in the throne room on your behalf, and your life is spared. I mean, wouldn't that not, would that not change you somehow? Would you not be thankful? And you may be hearing echoes in Esther's story of someone else because the, the tr of all the unknowns and the stressors that are going on in your life right now, the truest thing about you and your story is that you have a king who saw you also under the sentence of death. Right? Not just the death that's going to happen at the end of your life, but all the deaths that you experience each and every year when someone you love dies. Right? When things do not go according to plan. 
right, when relationships that you cherish break down. And Jesus, right, how much security and comfort did he have in the palace of heaven? And then he willingly chose to save your life through identification and mediation, right? He identifies with you by becoming a human to share in your plight. And then he mediates on your behalf, not by going into a throne room at the risk of his life, right? But he goes to a Roman cross, right? With the certainty of perishing. And then rises from the dead in a new kind of life in order to transfer you out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved son. And so this is why as we read Esther, the main point of Esther is not Let's look at Esther, right, as an example. Although that is a good and strong application. We'll get there in a minute, right? But first, you know, like be courageous like Esther. Yes, we should. But first, what we need to do is to see Esther as a signpost. Why? Because if the main thing we take away is, wow, Esther is so inspiring. I'm going to be like Esther. Inspiration, you know, that kindles a flame that goes for a while, but eventually the inspiration dies, right? Because inspiration doesn't change a heart. Motivating by guilt doesn't change a heart. Be like Esther or else God's going to be disappointed with you. Inspiration doesn't change a heart. Guilt doesn't change a heart. What changes a heart is grace. And when you see Jesus doing what he does, you can't help but want to identify with him wherever you are and view your life no longer through what's in it for me, but how can I bless other people? And so as we think about applying this, I think just two things. First is corporately as a church, and next is individually. So corporately as a church, I mentioned, you know, John and I went to a Acts 29 church planning conference Thursday, Friday, and it so it was just a good time to be, you know, there were so many men and women there in many harder places of ministry than we are, and just seeing what they're going through and, you know, hearing their stories, and it reminded me that we're a part of something so much bigger than even, like, this incredible church family that I love so much right here, and I, I don't want us to forget that we, we planted this church, yes, to be able to care for one another and to experience the Lord here, but more than that, we, we planted this church to let so many other people know in this city about who this Jesus is. And as we look at Esther's example, right, when she orders the fast and then she walks into the throne room with confidence, that's exactly what we need to do because th- this area, it, it is really hard. I mean, there are so many people here who, you know, and this, it's over 70% non-family households in our area. And people, it, like people are almost so intelligent and so gifted um, and so distracted that they don't see their need for God. And so what, what we have to do is pray with a zealous and desperate dependence that, Lord, if you do not come down on this city and move, nothing's going to happen. Right? Like, if you don't love these people more than I love them, then they're not going to come to know the, the pleasure of being in your family. And so we, we need to, to pray like this, but then to make plans right? As Esther also did. So we make plans. Plans matter, but we don't do it without being on our knees and and pleading with the Lord because if he doesn't move, then nothing's going to happen. It's not going to be our wisdom. It's not going to be our ingenuity. It's not going to be our strategy, although those things matter. So I hope we never walk walk away from this vision as a church. 
And number two, as you think about yourself as an individual, uh, what I love about the narrative structure of this story is uh, commentator Karen Jobes pointed out that Esther is not just called Esther, but Queen Esther 14 times in the book. And 13 of those 14 times when she's called Queen Esther happens after this scene. And you see what the narrator's communicating? Before Esther, before when Esther was elevating, right, her Persian identity and kind of hiding who she was as belonging to God and living for herself, not for other people, she was much more passive. She was much more compliant, right? Her true self, you could say, was dormant. But once she decided to reveal who she was as God's child and stop living for herself, but grabbing hold of this precious truth of God's sovereignty and her responsibility that God had made her for this time and for this place, she bloomed. She flowers. You know, there's, there's a dignity about her. She starts taking more initiative. She's ordering around Mordecai, telling him what to do. And the point here is now when, yes, as you look at Christ and then you be like Esther, right? So God will do this for you. You So much about our generation is, you know, who's my true self? Who's my deepest self? The funny thing about that is God is telling us all the time in the Bible who your true self is, right? When you live as one who belongs to Jesus, using your position, not not for yourself, but for others, who knows how God can use you? And you might ask, but you don't know how weak I am or how inadequate I feel or what an imposter I feel like. You think Esther didn't? The whole time she's thinking, I'm here by the skin of my teeth. Or maybe you think, maybe I'm too morally compromised because of the things that I've done to be used by God. You don't think Esther thought the same thing? Having done what she did to become queen? And so who knows, although we do know, whether God has not placed you, right? You have the way you think, the way you feel, even your weaknesses and sufferings and wounds. God will use to reach people that only you can reach. And I'm not just doing preacher talk up here. I know this because I've seen it in so many of your lives. And so you are here in your job, in your neighborhood, with the person God has made you to be for such a time as this. Let's pray. Um, Heavenly Father, I thank you so much that you uh, give us an identity that's so much bigger than our, our looks, our net worth, our career successes. Um, but rooted in something so much deeper. And I pray that you'll help everybody here uh, to take great joy in living as the people you've made us to be, uh, not being ashamed even when we're scared to identify with you, uh, especially considering the lengths you've gone to to identify with us. Uh, help us to take great assurance and comfort in the fact that you love to use us and we're responsible, but yet you're also sovereign. And I pray that you'll help us to Uh, Touch people's lives both in this church and in this city uh, because it is something only that you can do. And so I ask that you will follow through on your promise um, to love others more than we love them and to use our feeble deeds to bring other people into the pleasure of belonging to you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.